Welcome to Keeping In Sight, a podcast dedicated to narrowing the gap on healthcare disparities. The leading cause of death among women globally is cardiovascular disease. Despite this fact, cardiovascular disease in women remains understudied, underdiagnosed, and undertreated. Sanofi MSL co-hosts Delilah Masick and Kinsey Brindley have a discussion with Dr. Annabel Volgman on sex disparities in atrial fibrillation. Joining us today is Dr. Annabel Volgman. She is a professor of medicine at Rush Medical College and the co-founder and medical director of the Rush Heart Center for Women. Dr. Volgman is very active in efforts to increase awareness of heart disease in women, and as a passionate researcher and leading advocate in the prevention of heart disease in women, she is a nationally recognized leader in cardiology care. Dr. Volgman, we are so excited to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here, Kinsey and Delilah. It's my pleasure to be here. You've been a prominent leader of the Go Red for Women movement since the early 2000s. I love that you also wear red every day to raise awareness that heart disease is the leading cause of death in women. So Dr. Volkman, can you share with the listeners how your passion for health equity with women has led you to where you are today? Well, I wanted to mention that I started my career as an electrophysiologist doing procedures and I transitioned to being more in the outpatient and research after I started my work with the American Heart Association and the efforts to increase awareness about heart disease in women. As an electrophysiologist, one of my first patients that led me to think that there is discrimination against women was a young woman in her 40s who was complaining of palpitations. And she was finally, after a year, sent to me by one of her internists that she sought a second opinion from because she was not satisfied with answers that she was being given, that her palpitations are due to her anxiety, and she was not taken seriously. And her internist didn't really know what to do either, so he sent her to me. And the first thing I did, of course, was an EKG. And her EKG revealed WPW, which is Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. This is an EKG that can reveal the cause of her palpitations, and it's a serious cause of disease in these women. Women with Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome can go into rapid atrial fibrillation and can actually pass out or die from these episodes. This woman did not even get an EKG when she was complaining of palpitations. That's the first thing you get in any patient who has palpitations. So right away, I thought that this was really injustice to women. And I think if if she had been a man, she would have easily have gotten an EKG with her first symptoms. And so that did not sit well for me. So when the American Heart Association approached me in, in 1999 and about possibly being involved with the campaign to increase awareness about heart disease in women, I jumped at that opportunity and uh, wanted to make sure that women were being treated appropriately and would respect just as well as men. And so that started my journey on decreasing sex disparities in healthcare. So thank you so much for sharing that journey and your passion and being an advocate for women with heart disease. For most of the conversation today, we're going to be focusing on AFib specifically, and in many studies, we see that the risk of developing AFib is higher in men, but the risk of suffering from AFib complications is higher in women. So in your experience, why do you believe we see these differences between males and females? 
In the past, we found that women had higher bleeding risk, higher stroke risk. Remember that, you know, time changes everything. We've learned from that. We love that that showed that women had more complications because we worked hard to figure out what we can do to alleviate those complications. We mitigated those risks and we no longer see that. As you know, the direct oral anticoagulants decrease the sex disparities and strokes in women. When women are treated with direct oral anticoagulants, we don't see the higher risk of bleeding or higher risk of stroke. When we were using warfarin, if the INR was greater than four, women definitely had a higher risk of intracerebral bleeding, which scared everybody. So they were reluctant to put them on anticoagulants, you know, for some of them. And when they did put them on oral anticoagulants, which was just warfarin at the time, they did see that higher risk. We don't see that in women anymore. Even with treatment, women have more symptoms. I think we need to figure that out. One thing that we know also is that women have been treated with digoxin more than beta blockers and calcium channel blockers for rate control. And in combination with their antiarrhythmic drugs, they are also being given more digoxin, which causes more side effects. And we need to change that. We need to educate doctors and women that digoxin is not as good a drug for them for atrial fibrillation as initially beta blockers and then calcium channel blockers and only if absolutely necessary, give them digoxin as a rate control treatment. All right. And then that was a great explanation about, you know, what's going on with women that make them a little bit different than men as well in the clinical setting. But sex hormones and pregnancy may also contribute to differences in cardiovascular risk. This leads us to the astonishing fact that the United States is the only developed country with rising rates of death during pregnancy and even up to a year postpartum. Black women especially are three times as more likely to die than Caucasian women. And a substantial portion of this is being attributed to cardiovascular disease. Can you elaborate on the types of barriers these women are facing? Thank you so much for asking that question. Have been faced with this fact for the last few years, and the medical associations, the cardiology associations, and OB/GYN associations have been working very closely together to really decrease this mortality risk in pregnant women, especially African American women. As you know, there's a lot of social determinants of health that can affect the outcomes. And unfortunately, African-American women have a higher risk, such as obesity, diabetes, and hypertension. Women are getting pregnant later in life. And so they have more opportunities to have more comorbidities. And we are seeing that in African-American women and in other races. So we really need to educate women about their health when they get pregnant. Uh, we need to control hypertension, and diabetes when they are pregnant. We need to educate them about the importance of staying healthy before they get pregnant so that they don't have to face these complications. Education is key to decreasing the risk when it comes to the higher risk of maternal mortality. 
And not only in pregnancy, but women in general who develop AFib experience delays in diagnosis and accessing treatment. And in fact, women are more likely to report AFib symptoms and a worse AFib quality of life than men. Diagnostics such as stress testing and echocardiographs are less likely to be performed in women with AFib. So why are we missing the mark and why are we not appropriately evaluating women for AFib? That's a great question, Kinsey. That's something that we need to work on because a lot of women don't really get evaluated as much as men. It's the discrimination that we are seeing between men and women. Uh, Back in the 1970s, men were thought to have heart disease and women didn't have as much heart disease. But as you know, women die of heart disease more than any other health-related issues. So we need to be more aggressive in women. And fortunately, because of the new technology that we have access to, women can have wearables that can determine what their arrhythmias are when they're having palpitations so that they have documentation when they go to the doctor that I have palpitations. And this is the arrhythmia that I'm seeing when I, and when it says atrial fibrillation or SVT, supraventricular tachycardia, or PACs or PVCs, they are no longer dismissed. It's not because they have anxiety or they are just nervous that they can be dismissed as easily. So documentation is uh, such a powerful tool. So I think that there is hope that women can be treated better and with more respect because of this wearable technology. And I empower my patients to wear these monitors, to use these monitors so that they can document uh, their arrhythmias and I can appropriately treat them. And young women and young men should encourage their mothers and grandmothers to wear this, help them wear these technologies, use these technologies so that they will not be dismissed and have a stroke as their first presentation of atrial fibrillation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like we need strong women to advocate for these women. And Dr. Willowgren, thank you so much for taking this initiative. When it comes to women involvement in clinical trials, you co-authored a recent article in the Journal of the American Heart Association. And that article demonstrated that women's participation in AFib clinical trials increased significantly with enhanced representation of women physicians in the author panel of these trials. I know we still have a lot of work to do with increasing women authorship in clinical trials, but what do you believe are some solutions for this imbalance and how can you see this changing? We are working very hard to encourage women to lead trials. There are only a few women leaders out there right now, but we are encouraging efforts being done by different organizations to increase women leaders. I love that now the guidelines have, the most recent guidelines have been led by women leaders. Dr. Martha Gulati led the chest pain guidelines. Dr. Kittleson just wrote the consensus statement on heart failure would preserve ejection fraction. Dr. Beacon Boskert was one of the vice chairs for the heart failure guidelines. And you'll see that in these guidelines that are led by women, they always talk about women and how different they are 
And I think that that is the way we're going to change the way women are being treated. So we do need strong women to lead these guidelines, to lead these trials so that we can make a difference. And I can tell you that uh, as an older cardiologist, it's not easy because we are still the ones who are fortunate enough to have the, the babies. But with those babies come a lot of responsibilities for our families and for our careers. It's really hard to balance our obligations to our children and, and families with our obligations in the workforce. But because women live longer and we have longer time to dedicate to our families. So I can tell you that when I had my babies, I didn't publish a lot of articles. But as soon as my daughter went to college, I had a lot more free time. I wasn't constantly worrying where she is and picking her up from soccer practice or music practice. So I had more time to dedicate to publish articles. And that's when I really started publishing my papers. So for 20 years, I didn't publish for a lot, you know, one or two articles now and then. But as soon as my daughter went to college, I was publishing, you know, 10 to 30 articles a year. They were all about women and, and heart disease and uh, trying to decrease disparities. So, you know, I encourage women to have their families, but also know that in the future, they will have time to dedicate to publishing. So try to pay attention to their kids and family at first if they can. And then also find a place that encourages that. Find a place to work that supports that. You know, as uh, many women leaders say, women can have everything, but just not all at once. <laughs> we, can, we can do it, you know, one at a time, but not leave the workforce altogether so that you can't do it in the future. Dr. Volgman, I love that answer. Delilah and I are moms as well. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but as women, a lot of times we need to be assertive and confident because we can do it as well. We've talked about imposter syndrome. I'm sure people have heard of it. Many listeners, if they're women out there, we can do it. Um, so just keep that in mind. I think that's great advice that you gave everybody that's listening in. Kind of bringing it back in, talking about AFib. So we discussed diagnosis, but getting into treatment a little bit. When treated for AFib specifically, women are more likely to receive rate control rather than rhythm control strategies compared to men. However, rate control medications alone for AFib have been associated with poor functional status and quality of life. In the RACE trial from 2005, the women randomized to a rhythm control strategy using AADs had a greater rate of cardiovascular events. So RACE concluded that in female patients with persistent AFib, a rhythm control approach leads to more cardiovascular morbidity and mortality, and that a rate control strategy may be the best approach for female patients. What are your thoughts on these results? This study is such an old study. 2005 seems like, you know, not that old, but it is old. We really need to get away from that thinking. Rhythm control does not cause any more problems with women than men. That is no longer the case. Um, women do just as well with rhythm control as men. We know that women have longer QT intervals at baseline, 
which may in turn result in more QT prolongation with the administration of antiarrhythmic drugs. When physicians pursue a rhythm control strategy with antiarrhythmic drugs, do you believe that they consider the sex of the patient? And should they? So we need to get away from the notion that women have higher risk when they are treated with rhythm control. We also mitigated the risks of antiarrhythmic drugs by being more careful with the antiarrhythmic drugs that we use. We know that class three antiarrhythmic drugs have a higher risk of torsad. So we educated the women who we were putting on class three antiarrhythmic drugs about torsad and the potential for torsad when their QT intervals can be prolonged by these drugs. It's just a matter of education, as I said before, when we are giving them antiarrhythmic drugs that can cause side effects, we educated them on those side effects and we really changed and decreased those side effects in women. So I think we learned from safer antiarrhythmic drugs. Catheter ablation is now much more commonly used and it does not have worse outcomes in women. The more electrophysiologists are being trained, the more they will be out there in the community and there will be more uh, catheter ablation use in men and women. So to summarize the last couple points, older trials like race may be why we are seeing some hesitation in treating women appropriately. So let's talk about some recent data. An analysis of the East AFNET 4 trial, which was published in 2020, has shown that initiating rhythm control in both women and men with early AFib lowers the risk of death from cardiovascular causes, stroke, or hospitalization for heart failure or acute coronary syndrome. When looking at both past and present data, what are your thoughts on the difference in AFib management? And should there be different approach for women with AFib versus men? Thank you for that question. Based on the more recent data, such as the East AFNET study, women do just as well as men. There should not be differences in the way we treat women as we do men. So Women should request the same treatment and uh, doctors should refer women uh, as aggressively as they do refer men to electrophysiologists so that they can be treated appropriately with either antiarrhythmic drugs or catheter ablation. So Dr. Volgman, do you recommend any resources to your patients who do have more questions about atrial fibrillation or their symptoms? I would recommend the organization Women Heart. So womenheart, one word, dot org, is a great resource for women with any cardiovascular disease and especially atrial fibrillation because they have a lot of information that is so useful. If you are a woman with atrial fibrillation or arrhythmias or any cardiovascular disease, womenheart.org. So we've covered a lot of information in this episode. We have tons of pearls and great insights from Dr. Volgman. However, if you had to choose the two most important points you want the listeners to take away, what would they be? Women need to be more assertive in getting better treatment. They can't just be dissatisfied. They need to seek doctors who could treat them better and they need to be more assertive in asking for better treatment and not just be 
complacent with the fact that they're not as well as they can be. Uh, so we need to empower women to feel better and ask for better treatment uh, so that they can feel better. And how about the second point? Ah, second point is we need strong women to advocate for women. And uh, I think we are seeing that. And I'm really pleased to, to see that there are women stepping up to help other women to get the best treatment that they can for their heart disease. I love both of those takeaways and just the whole discussion that we've had today about overcoming gender disparities and cardiovascular disease. So outside of the professional arena, do you have any passions or interests that you'd like to share? Yes, I love to read books. I love to read books about strong women. And these women who have led companies are now writing their memoirs and their biographies. So I love to read about um, these strong women and whatever message they can give us to help our journey through life as women, to just to get the respect and our ability to give us much back to society because we have so much to give. These women have seen a lot in their lives. Um, the most recent book that I read was about Indra Nui, who was the CEO of PepsiCo, and she really strongly advocates to help women through their family time. Because even as CEO, she had difficulty trying to balance her work-life balance. So she is a big advocate for trying to help women get the appropriate uh, childcare for her children and our children. So we, we do need to help with that, those efforts. I advocate, I go to Washington, D.C., and advocate for patients and our professional life as cardiologists. We should encourage women to be as assertive as men in trying to get legislation for women and our quality of lives. Dr. Volgman, I mean, your passion for this topic just speaks for itself. Thank you so much for joining us today and you know sharing all the valuable insights. We enjoy discussing gender disparities in the atrial fibrillation space and really learning from your experience. There are some great takeaway points in this episode. Listeners, be sure to click on the episode description for links to references and resources to support your efforts in tackling sex disparities. Thank you for tuning in and stay tuned for our next episode on health disparities with the management of atrial fibrillation with Dr. Larry Jackson. 